are back again with movie time. How are y'all doing? It's like, I know, we took such a short break of two days, but hey, we're back again uh, to be live on air. And tonight we have my co-host, Kente. Hey, Kente. Hey, how you doing? Doing awesome. And we have our amazing guest back again, Mr. Steve Eniston. Hey, Steve, how you doing? Doing great. Glad to be back. You're very kind. No, thank you for coming back. It's like, and, and just before we get right back into chopping it back up from where, can you tell them how they can call in on us and do all of that fun stuff? Sure, sure, of course. Uh, you know, we love participation, and there's many ways to participate. One way you can participate is you can go to our website, that is IndieRadio.org. Once again, that's IndyRadio.org. Another way you can participate is go is call in, and that number is 323 323- Five two two four six zero one. Once again, that number is three two three five two two four six zero one. Also, too, this is our third week of using this uh, website, and it's called Blab. And this, what this allows it is for you guys to not only hear our podcast as you do every week, but you can see us as well. So I believe this is the second show we've done on Blab with Movie Time, if I'm correct, right? Indeed. We had our inaugural ceremony last week, and this is our uh, our very second launch. Yes. Not bad. For, not bad. Twice being an egg. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> See, I'm an egghead. Yeah. <laughs> oh, funny. The picture's not a lie. I'm actually an egghead. <laughs> <laughs> you fine. So, uh, Steve, uh, last time that we were talking, uh, remind people a little bit more about you. Okay, yeah. So, especially if uh, you didn't listen to part one, um, I've got kind of an unusual background. Uh, uh, I've been a lawyer for about 20, I think I'm up to about 27 years. Uh, The last half of that has started to focus almost exclusively on business and entertainment and uh, what we call soft intellectual property law, and uh, so you know trademarks and copyrights and licensing and and that kind of thing. Uh, but certainly a lot of entertainment, and also in the last almost two decades now, um, sort of my second job aside from being a lawyer has been um, uh, in started out in the film business as a screenwriter, um, and uh, you know doing spec features or work for higher features, and then. Uh, sort of evolved because I live in Seattle and uh, wasn't going to move to to Los Angeles or New York, evolved into producing so that the independent film content that I was involved with could, you know, I could help get it made. Um, So, uh, you know, those are two of the hats that I wear, lawyer and and I guess filmmaker. And the third hat that we talk, I think, a little bit about is... uh, uh, for six years, I ran a game company in Seattle, and uh, yes. so it's kind of a kind of a. Those are usually the three. Usually, when I'm talking to folks, I'm usually talking about one of those three things. That is so awesome. And so, Steve, here's the question: Last time that we were talking, we just barely got a chance to cover our surface, also on our low-budget filmmaking, as well as also our crowdfunding and talking about like really creative ways of how to do it when you don't have that large budget to work with. And I know that you uh, know that right now, two days ago, it was announced about the equity in crowdfunding thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. Yeah, I actually, it was funny. It was, it was actually, uh, I don't know what, what got announced two days ago, uh, about 10 days ago. Um, and I only remember that because I was down in Los Angeles at a, on a panel on uh, uh, finance uh, the the had finally uh, kind of confirmed and passed its detailed or more detailed regulations, uh, you know, following the Jobs Act. It's been almost two years since they sort of said, oh, we're going to do equity crowdfunding. And then uh, uh, that took forever for a lot of reasons to get that accomplished. And then quite, quite recently, finally, uh, final regulations were uh, were was passed. It'll still be three to six months before those are finally confirmed after more. Uh, the theory is that just in crowdfunding world, just like we used to uh, uh, sell uh, projects and raise money based on you know rewards, right? Based on T-shirts and and uh, hats and copies of the DVD or copies of the game or whatever it was that you could use to incentivize someone to essentially give you money, donate money. Um, uh, now joining that parade will be investors. And, uh, and that is potentially a very big deal, although it also is a very big experiment right now because no one really knows if it's going to be this new gold rush into crowd financing or whether the nature and scope of these new regulations are sufficiently onerous and burdensome that it's going to be a little bit more slow going. And, and, and so there's a real pro and con in, in, those, in that. Um, and we'll know, you know, if we do this show in a year, we're going to have a whole bunch of information about how that went when they finally started taking on investors um, in the crowdfunding world. And it, it's kind of fun to talk, talk about and speculate, um, um, but it's not as easy. It won't be, I think what most, level one, if you haven't learned anything about this move towards um, equity financing, um, you know, the very first thing that you should know is it won't be as easy to get your campaign up and running nor as inexpensive to get your campaign up and running as it was for reward-based crowdfunding simply because there still has to be compliance with a lot of the sec rules and we talk about that detail but but that's kind of where things are going i know everybody's excited about it i'm kind of excited about it um just just to see how it shakes out well, because a lot of people have said, like, okay, you know, having a great T-shirt or the DVD is awesome, but, you know, maybe you might want to see a little bit of return on my own investment or something, especially if they've invested into multitudes of projects. It's like there comes a point that also it's like, you know, T-shirts and all of that is great for them, but they're like, okay, I want a little bit more action into this, maybe see like $5 on my $5. Yeah, I, I agree. I I, I have a lot of clients and a lot of friends and a lot of colleagues and uh you know who race to crowdfunding to start their low budget financed work whether it's film or games or whatnot and and i think i think what we're learning what i feel like i learned have learned or at least these are my tastes that's my maybe more appropriate is that there's some spaces where reward based crowdfunding works really well and, and, and like, for example, uh, in the board game space, like if you're, you know, if you love European style board gaming and you love Settlers of Catan mm -hmm. and you love all that stuff that's coming out and all these great publishers are out there, they figured out that the reward is essentially the game, right? They, they're yes. already 
famous publishers. They're already ready, you know, uh, famous designers. And uh, if if I want to now make another game and I need fifty thousand bucks in which to uh, do all the development and the first production run and build in a little buffer so I can give you your your game and I you know your reward is the game for fifty bucks. I, that works really well. That's a great yes. model. People are really satisfied with that model because they feel some ownership in the sense of helping to launch the creative project and, and it's sort of guaranteed a fair value for what they've provided. It's not it's not a t shirt, you know, it's it's actually yeah. the game. We participated in the making of the thing. There's a big philosophical rift, I think, in crowdfunding world about whether that's appropriate. Um, because it really isn't. Kickstarter wasn't designed as a commerce hub. And when you do, here's your $50 game that's worth $50 in exchange for $55, that really is just commerce, right? I, we just created a way for me to sell my first my first edition. Um, so there's some philosophical, but, but it works in that context. I think in filmmaking, it doesn't work as well because for all the reasons you said, you know, it, 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 we sort of burn out on a T-shirt and a hat and a poster, or you know, it doesn't. It's not as exciting, and so I think that's one of the ways that we could see this equity financing really come into play. Um, some of the things that uh, it, that would draw me personally. It sounds like it might draw you, but it might. You know, yeah. I, I might be more interested in you know giving someone five hundred bucks if if there's a lottery ticket that goes with it you know if it does really well and you know i you know and in a perfect world maybe i'll get a hat and and a lottery ticket that'd be cool you know some sort exactly. of exactly but, um, but it's in, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out there are and and, and uh, when i did the panel 10 days ago i studied up on what had just come out and the detail it was very confusing but you know there are some big parameters most of these equity financing uh crowdfunding uh, opportunities uh, first, there will be probably a whole new gold rush of new platforms, right? Mm -hmm. So Kickstarter probably isn't going to, under the brand name Kickstarter, do this. Indiegogo is sending out a lot of signals that it's going to do this, but it hasn't technically done it yet. If you go to Indiegogo, there will be a lot of Q&A you can look at, and it's kind of like, you know, uh, keep following us to learn more when we're ready to go. Um, my uh, my favorite little anecdote about Indiegogo is I love the fact that when they went out and needed to raise money on their own to grow, they didn't crowdfund it. They they actually went to straight equity finance. Exactly. I, thought, I, I just thought that was funny. Yeah. I just thought that was fun. Anyway, um, so there's going to be a lot of new entities. There'll be entities that are set up. I was reading there are a number of entities that are being set up to actually facilitate. If you're a filmmaker, if you're the entrepreneur, they're, they're being set up to actually facilitate helping you do all of the work that you need to do to comply with the new regulations so that you can then marry a platform that will then help, you know, raise the money. Um, there will be expense and, and it's going to be more expensive to, to do these things. The most you can raise in the typical financing that we're all thinking about is I think a million dollars. I think that's what I yeah. So, so this is not going to be uh, the way that you can go out and get $10 million to make a film with a couple name actors and you're going to pay them $2 million each or something like that. It's just not a mechanism for that. Um, I think the most that any person can put in, um, there's a really interesting formula and it relates to your income and a percentage of that income or 
I think 5,000, whichever is greater. And, and, and so you have to walk through this formula to find out how much you as an investor can put in. But I think a rule of thumb is the most you're ever going to get from any one person on the way to your million is 5,000. That would be the most. Um, so you're it's still going to be like crowdfunding. You know, I mean, you're not. This is not a mechanic where someone's going to get excited and drop you two hundred fifty thousand bucks. You're still going to be building yeah. off this really broad audience. You know, really broad audience to get to that number. Well, ideally, in crowdfunding, a lot of people stick to about ten thousand, twenty thousand that they usually raise. The people who would be doing ten million would probably not even be looking at crowdfunding as a part of their resources because it's like at that. When in time you're talking tent polling productions at that uh, at that end, it's like a, usually it's the under what uh, like the under five hundred k's and up to ones that would be looking at it, and it's it, it then changes also the way that you as a crowdfunder uh, look at your campaign as well because now. Um, how do you feel about the fact that it's also now your equity investors as well can all be called unaccredited investors as well as accredited investors? Like then, it doesn't it muddy also the waters in terms of how you have to deal your offers and structures and all of that. Sure, I mean that's that's where the expense, I you know, expense plus complexity. Um, you are, you know, all the you know. If, imagine a filmmaker and they want to make a film and it's going to cost a hundred thousand dollars and and a year ago they went to the crowd and they got a hundred thousand dollars and uh fifteen thousand of that went into fulfillment you know maybe fifteen percent went into uh all the things they had to give away as rewards uh to the folks that gave them money but now that they have the net eighty five thousand bucks you know, as long as they're doing what they told the crowd they do, they're producing a film, uh, you know, they're on their own. They're their own boss, and you don't have any investors that you have to take care of. Um, same scenario in six months, go out and raise $100,000, uh, but you want to use an equity platform, uh, and you have to follow all of the rules, which mean you're going to have a disclosure statement, you're going to have a private placement, all of the things you normally have to do to raise money legally, you still will have to do through these platforms, make all the disclosures about your lack of experience, uh, the, the management team, what's good about it, what's bad about it. I mean, just, just everything that you would normally have to do. Um, I lost your picture. Are we still on? <laughs> 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 yeah, we're still so, here. Who, who's still on? Sorry about that. We're still on. Okay. Um, good. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, the the complexity of uh, of this process is going to also it's going to also add um, a ongoing and never ending fiduciary duty to your investors. So as opposed to having received the money as a as a you know from donors and essentially being free to spend that as long as it's somehow consistent with the purpose that you raised it for in an equity situation you have a fiduciary duty to all of those investors. Mm -hmm. And and that is a very high standard. And what it really means is every breath you take you're looking out for their interests and not your own. Okay, you know, and that that is just going to lead to problems down the road. I mean, having right. having 
no one to be accountable to in a sense with donors and then having 200 investors to be accountable to and report to are two very, very different ecosystems to play in. And that's right. going to be, we're going to hear a lot about that. Yeah. Um, at, this, at, at this point, <laughs> at, at this point um, in the game, when it comes to crowdfunding at the higher up, up oh, higher echelon in uh, filmmaking, is it like a dirty word, you know, crowdfunding? Or does it matter? If they don't care, as long as they found the money to do their project. Yeah, well, that's a that's a really interesting question. I don't think it's a dirty word, and certainly uh, Hollywood celebrity talent has used it. Right? right. I mean, I haven't kept track recently of who's been doing it recently, but um, uh, there was a. Uh, an interesting project that Alan Tudyk and Nathan Fillion did fairly recently that they were crowdfunding on. And certainly two years ago, you had Veronica Mars and Spike Lee had a project and Zach Braff. And, you know, they're raising, you know, multiple millions of dollars uh, based on their existing celebrity and their existing uh, fan base. Um, and, you know, I think generated a little bit of resentment, like this platform wasn't really for them. So resentment from the bottom up, like, Hey, look, you know, this is a <laughs> yeah. way for the rest of us to raise money. Right, not people who have um, resources. Veronica Mars, you don't really need this platform, and you don't really need to pull all this money down for your project uh, in the same way that maybe a filmmaker that doesn't have a reputation uh, you know, has to do it. On the, on the other hand, you know, those projects illustrate a powerful point, I think, in crowdfunding, and that, that point is that... Um, they are preaching to a choir that they have already created. Right. Um, right. Veronica Mars fans already wanted more content, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and the Veronica Mars fans, um, you know, were clamoring, were existing, they were identifiable, they could be located, and were clamoring for a feature film. So that choir existed, and all that was happening was kind of like a subscription. And, and so the money gets raised. Um, I don't think they cannibalized money that an indie filmmaker would have got otherwise. I, I, I think it was a, it was their own fan base that jumped in and gave them, you know, five million bucks or whatever it was that they raised. Yeah. Um, now, the dirty word question is a great question because it also top down. Does the industry, you know, what does the industry think of its talent, if you will, going to the crowd. And I don't, I, I don't know. I haven't read a lot about that. I haven't got a lot of feedback. I, I, I think that um, certainly there are lots of uh, components in the industry at all levels that you would argue aren't happy about that, that they wouldn't want, in a sense, to be, um, uh, you know, gone around and, and, and had somebody sort of set up a movie uh, without them. Uh, and, and so you sort of say, well, if the industry is, you know, studio to producers, to agents, to managers, to talent, you know, and all of a sudden someone whose talent is, is doing this, you know, does that mean people aren't getting paid? You know, they're out, they're out of the loop. And I don't know how they feel about it. And I don't know how they feel about it as a brand, you know, as a, as a, is that, is that, um, does somebody go out there? Is that, uh, an indication that they were not able to succeed within the system that already exists and people were turning them down so they're going to the crowd or is it a different thing? I, I don't know. I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I Have you guys heard much about that? I, I um, In that way, it's like a lot of them because a lot of them are 
getting into more producing as an actor it's like for example with the the zach braff the what the veronica mars movie where it's like she wanted to do it they wanted to do it and people were like okay um a lot of equity people because these are franchises and these are people who are famous what the only things i have heard about it is the fact that it's like it went to the good on them for doing it, but it's like a, it's just a different method that they used in regards to it. They didn't. It wasn't one of those like accepted or rejected. A lot of people felt who. Uh oh. <laughs> All right, uh, Grayson. Grayson uh, froze, but but you know what? I, the reason why I asked that question because. You know, in um, the in the, the book world, the publishing world, I know that a lot of times they see people who self-publish not in the same light as someone who went the, the more traditional route. So I, it made me think that maybe uh, people in Hollywood, you know, who are going through the regular channels or the, the traditional channels, maybe might frown on it, you know, or, you know, or it could be, hey, they got the money to do it. You know, I mean, I yeah, wasn't quite I sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I see that. I, I, I think I think that's a really astute observation that's 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 i think in book world when people are self-publishing they are essentially ignored until their fan base gets so big that some publisher goes wow i you've proven to me that you're an author that has a replicable audience and now i would like to take advantage of that and sign you and i i kind of feel like you know so yes so the fact that you have published a book as a self-publisher is given no credibility Mm -hmm. in the publishing world until you reach a metric like that. And I suspect that, and I, it's only a suspicion, I suspect that the film world is the same way. That the fact that you crowdfunded a film and made a film is, is irrelevant. Now, if that film finds some really measurable indicia of success, it makes it the Sundance, it's incredibly commercial, you happen to find an actor who became famous in another film, I don't, you know, whatever that is, then... It's all about the money, so mm-hmm. they will happily put aside any reservations they had about you raising money through the crowd. Right. The opportunity. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I doubt that anyone in the industry is telling their client to go to the crowd as a first option. That's right. Uh, I, I just think that's probably not happening yet. You know who uh, just recently start got on the uh, crowdfunding train. I don't know if you remember um, from Dateline. He was on Dateline. Chris Hansen. He used to do the Catch a Predator back in the day oh, yeah. on Dateline. Yeah, yeah. So you know he he um, you know he got fired from NBC and he's been out the game for a couple of years. So he decided that he was going to restart the Catch a Predator and do it. It's called yeah. Chris Hansen versus the Predator. And the way that he was able to shoot the pilot was he raised, he needed $75,000 and he raised $89,000 and, uh, and, uh, he was able to shoot, you know, the pilot and it's, it's going to be distributed online somehow. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it, they're doing it in all kind of ways, you know? <laughs> so. Well, it's, it's definitely, I mean, it, I don't think anyone looks at crowdfunding and it's level of, of aggregate success over the past, I don't know, has, has it been even five years? Maybe it hasn't even been five years, but it's right. aggregate success, you know, is is very, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's very noticeable. I think one of the reasons that the equity crowdfunding has even come into play is I think there are some, you know, uh, groups of folks that are in the financial community that realize that a lot of capital, a lot of money is moving and changing hands. They don't have any part of it. <laughs> 
you know, it's yeah. like, you know, and that's, that was, a, that's an unusual development. I mean, it's, it's pretty astounding. I mean, if you're, uh, and I, I'm not a lawyer that necessarily practices in this particular area, but if you, if you think about uh, equity crowdfunding and the fact that now anybody, doesn't matter how much money that you have, but that anybody can become an investor in a small yeah. company, you know, that hasn't even been possible since 1934. Because our, our federal securities laws were passed in 1933 and 1934, and then the state laws after that. But those are those are the big ones. And those were the laws that said if you're going to raise money for, uh, you know, in, a, in an offering, you're going to sell a share of your company to raise money, you got to comply with these laws. Most of the ways to do that required you to either be a public offering, which you would never do because you can't afford to do it, right. or... Um, comply with what they called Regulation D, which is what we used to always raise money under Regulation D. But the biggest component of that regulation was the investors, and you mentioned it earlier, had to be accredited. So you had to have the only way you could play, you know, with investment was to already be rich. Right. Most people don't realize that. It was, you know, (laughs) it's like kind of strange that we would be in a, in this country where, you know, we talk about freedom, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, that you, we, you know, we're free and we can do, you know, any, anything that we, we choose to do, except we couldn't invest in a small company. Right. You know, that, if we weren't already rich, that's a really odd way of framing it, but it was true. Right. So now we can, when these regulations pass and these new form of equity crowdfunding, now someone who makes a hundred thousand or 150,000 a year or has a net worth that, you know, they're, they're not destitute, but they're not rich. If they want to throw $500 and invest in something, they can. I think that's good. That's, that's a ma- good Yeah. And they have, they have that opportunity to do their dreams, you know, meet, you know, so I think it's great. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. I, I, uh, it's, um, it will be interesting to see how it plays out. I think that, you know, one of the things that, uh, as a lawyer that I have spoken about, um, for panels and conferences is just the the reminding entrepreneurs who want to go down this path of the risks um, and 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 I think we're going to see a lot that the risks are higher just because we're now we are dealing with um, uh, you know selling securities you know we're it, it's like being on the stock market floor in Wall Street you are selling you know shares of a company uh, through the crowd. And, and the laws that we have had for 80 years um, still apply. And those laws include all of the disclosures, you, you know, being truthful. So the notion of exaggerating, the notion of, of comparing your film to uh, and its prospects to Napoleon Dynamite and My Big Fat Greek Wedding, uh, bad ideas. Right. Don't do that because that's a, that is, there, is, there is really no logical nexus between the truth of the success of those films and the hyper risk of your film, right? right. I mean, that's just a, that really shouldn't be anywhere. That kind of comparison shouldn't be there. What you really want to do, and what investors uh, who are used to this are are used to seeing, is you're disclosing all the ways that folks are going to lose their money. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just what investing is all about in these small company, high risk ventures, and. Uh, experienced investors are used to being told that they're very used to being told that 
this is a risky proposition. They're very used to being told that uh, the management team doesn't have much experience. They're very used to being told that um, while it, we might make a great product, it might not catch on with consumers and we might fail. Uh, they're used to being told all kinds of things. So when you look at offering memos, you'll see page after page after page of, of horrible things that might happen to cause you to lose your money as an investor. And that's okay. You're supposed to do that. Right, right. And we're not used to doing that as like filmmakers. We're like, why would I share all this potentially bad news? But the point <laughs> is, you need to disclose those risks. Right. Well, and as the, yeah, and as the filmmakers, it behooves us also to be verifiable and transparent in our ways as well. Yeah, you have to be. You have to be. That is that is the way. That is the only way that the sort of the the ultimate benefit of of raising money uh, from an investor can be realized. And and this is how I think about it. And this is how I share it. And, and try to try to when when folks haven't raised money before, uh, try to explain the importance of that kind of transparency and that kind of disclosure. Is is that you want at the end of a project, if it is unsuccessful, to simply reach out and and you know, get this shake their hand and say I'm so sorry that it didn't work out. Right, that's the value of properly you know raising money from investors is because they're taking a risk that it won't work out and when it doesn't work out you get to shake their hand and apologize we did everything we can just we did everything we could to save the patient we couldn't save the patient right this this film didn't yeah uh, or uh, you know this this project you know went under um, and that's the value I mean we all think of the value as being we'll make a lot of money but there's a different value and that is that as a as an entrepreneur, you're not going to jail. You're not. You're not being sued for breach of contract. You know. Uh, sometimes you just are appreciative that you can shake someone's hand and say we tried. And uh, if you don't follow the securities laws, if you don't have the transparency and the, all the disclosures, um, bad things happen when when the project fails. So now, how will this transform the package then towards other uh, towards equity investors? Now that with this new equity crowdfunding model being part of it, it's like will that actually turn off some higher net worth investors to say, well, okay, your project's already been divided out by that? Because I know that Adam was talking about the Adam Krenzman had spoken of the fact that there's no longer back end points, so don't even bother worrying about it. But Right. From, an, from a top equity investor, um, will that turn them on or turn them off of the idea that you know it's so divided and dividend out? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of the question is, you know, does a does an experienced equity investor who's used to putting larger sums of money into these investments, which they typically would be, I mean, I mean, I, I think most. Uh, Investors who are putting some money into a venture capital fund, or or as a as a as an angel investor, are usually looking for sums over five thousand dollars. Know, the cap on on crowdfunding, right? Um, and and I and I think that um, they may be uninterested for that reason. You know, they may be uninterested in what's happening on a sub one million dollar film project, uh, where their percentage of ownership is. Five percent, you know, of, of 
ghost or you know or maybe it's more but it's you know it's just not a a a major um uh stake in the project um i i they may be uninterested they you know a lot of investors have a profile when they go in and they want to they want to own uh uh you know they don't need more than half but they need to own more than a third you know because there are certain uh uh, statutes that require a two-thirds vote for major corporate decisions. So they've got this model in mind that they always want to be consulted. If you know we're going to sell the film or sell the company, I have to have my vote, right? So they want to have enough stake in the project where they are uh, able to exercise whatever level of control that they want and influence. And if they're owning one percent or two percent or three percent, at that point they may be disinterested. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I I don't think this is going to in any way, you know, eliminate the market for larger projects. And I think we're going to find that a lot of folks, and, and I would throw myself in that same camp, would look long and hard about taking a project to an equity crowdsourcing uh, campaign, as opposed to traditional equity fundraising. To raise the same yeah. amount of money. I mean, I have plenty of clients who have done done legal equity fundraising, you know, sub five hundred thousand dollars, and and you know ended up with two or three or four investors and put together a really tight team, and and it's workable and it's manageable. Um, and I think in a lot of those contexts, the entrepreneur would go, "Oh my God, if I had one hundred and fifty investors in this project, I would pull my hair out." You know, that would just be the end of me kind of thing. So I, I think I think we're going to see a lot of those kind of preferences and, and biases start bubbling up as these campaigns are offered. Um, I, I just don't I, I think that if you're if you are still among the very wealthy, you're in the one percent, you're accredited, you're you know, you've got a million dollars in equity uh, in net worth or you have over, uh, you know, uh, two hundred thousand thousand dollars a year in, in annual income over the last three years or whatever the, the, the existing rule is um, and just from a personality dynamic I think a lot of those individuals want a greater stake than they can get through these sub one million dollar projects on crowdfunding all right so um, now let's go into uh, being an entertainment attorney um, you know when it comes to to the law and what lawyers actually do, there's a lot of misconceptions, and I think people don't quite understand the different uh, disciplines. And as an entertainment lawyer, what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions are about what it is that you do? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question from a personal perspective because I think other lawyers would answer it differently. I, I, I think that uh, personally, I think the biggest misconception going in. Uh, and it actually relates to what we've been talking about is that I will help a client find an investor um, for their project. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not unheard of. I have been able to connect clients to uh, investors or potential investors, but it typically is not a role that I would play. Um, I'm not a, 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 a. I think in Los Angeles and New York, there are probably. Uh, a lot of lawyers who um, uh, have a Rolodex and may well have uh, uh, either existing investors who are looking for film projects or enough contacts where they will help mm-hmm. to find investors uh, for their projects. 
Um, but here in Seattle, and I think in most places outside of Los Angeles, that is not what entertainment lawyers are doing. Uh, we tend to, um, and I tend to, be involved in more of the nuts and bolts. Certainly at the beginning development phase. I mean, everything you know. You think of think of a film project starting out from the very beginning. It's all about the idea, right? Uh, and and how is that idea ultimately going to manifest itself in this thing called a screenplay? And and then what is the lawyering around that? The lawyering around that is probably going to be a combination of helping an author or a company who wants to acquire a screenplay to make sure that they actually can and do own that idea, right? And it might be that if you're an author that created a narrative piece of fiction, it's all about the copyright. And maybe it's about the content in that screenplay because while it's fictional, it deals with a whole bunch of brands or songs or some other messy thing that as a lawyer you have to go, oh, stop, you can't. You can't sit your film inside a Starbucks unless Starbucks says it's okay. You know, that kind of thing. So there's lawyer, lo a lot of lawyering around the idea and the development. And then obviously if the film goes into a stage where money's being raised, there's a lot of lawyering around that, right? That's, that's uh, you know, in terms of helping clients who have uh, found investors or helping clients prepare to find investors or just giving them counsel on um, creating the entity that they need to create to find money. You know, maybe they need to form the LLC, the limited liability company, and how would they structure an offering, those kinds of things. Um, and then, you know, moving, you know, all the way through the financing process, um, uh, which can include equity financing, of course. Um, and then sort of moving next into production council, right? I mean, then there's a whole bunch of lawyering around that because, you know, it, you know about signing all of the talent and what are those... What does your crew member look like? What does your below the line cast member look like? Are you dealing with the unions? Are you signing deals with, you know, your your directors and your cinematographers and in how are you dealing with your producers and you know just all of that lawyer work to sort of paper uh, the production itself um, and then you create this thing that you'll want to protect when it's done. So there's some you kind of go back to the owning the intellectual property part of the project and hopefully after the film is done. Uh, and you, you get to a point where um, somebody wants to buy and distribute the film. So Amen. there's lawyering around that transaction, the distribution deal. Um, so, you know, it's really good business for lawyers at the end of the day. <laughs> it is, very much so. Well, unfortunately, well we know independent filmmakers can't pay for all the things I just talked about. It just can't yes. be, you know, for low, low budgets. So, and this goes back to the original question. I, I think the real issue, here's what I think. If you're making a low-budget film, that's kind of what we're talking about. You know, how do you do these things on, on small budgets? And I'm talking yes. budgets that are below below a million. Maybe they're below 625000 I have a lot of documentary film clients who are making movies under $200,000. Um, the lawyer, there are legal needs that you will have. And what you really want is to have a relationship with a lawyer. It's just like your doctor mm -hmm. where they can say, here's what we have to do. You can't do everything I just said. You just can't do it. It's never going to happen because your budget is two hundred, and I can't do fifty thousand dollars with the legal services for a two hundred thousand dollar film. And Correct. so, what we have to do is figure out a way to absolutely prioritize what must be done, and then what might be done, and and then understand that the things that we don't do create business risk. And as an entrepreneur, you have to understand that there's business risk that associates with the things that we could do, but we, we can't afford to do. And what I find is that the filmmakers that want to engage in that process, 
and understand it, they make really good decisions about the things they choose not to do. They understand why they've chosen not to do that. And, and, uh, and, and they understand that there's some risk in that. So, I mean, that's the key. Because then if you go in and you say, okay, I've got, um, now I sound like a car salesman, but, you know, <laughs> you know, it's not the, how much do you want to spend? It, but it really is, you know, what's going on? Understand the project. If I have a project, um, documentary filmmaker, and they come in, and what they're really doing is a story about a, a real person that's alive. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, and they don't have a lot of money, and they're, you know, they've got, what they need is a really robust and all- sort of consuming life story rights agreement, right? It's, yes. you don't have that, if you don't have that, if you haven't gone to the subject of the documentary and you haven't got a life story rights agreement, you, you, you are a non-starter. There is, don't roll film, don't do an interview, yeah. right? And, and, you know, and if that's all the money you had as a filmmaker, that's where it should go, is into that, you know, if you only had, you know, a, a thousand bucks for legal, and you had a really complicated life story rights scenario, you know, the one thing that you, you're going to get shut down on is when someone says, I didn't give you permission to tell my story and you had to get it, you know. So that's where the money should go, is to get that agreement. Um, so, I mean, that's the relationship I think anyone should have in their lawyer in this business because typically speaking, until you get up to those you know, mm-hmm. studio-level films, you don't have enough for it all. And you have to pick and choose your battles. Yep. Yep. And, 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 uh, you know, and I, and filmmaker and everybody gets more experience, you know, producers that I work with, you know, the first time that we'll do a set of agreements, well, they'll pay for those agreements, but they understand, you know, if we do a good job and if we are part of a team, it's not just, it's not, it's not online legal services, which are great. You know, I'm not dissing any, any legal zoom or anything like that. Phenomenal uh, resources, but, um, I, I think it's really kind of cool when you hire a lawyer and the lawyer understands enough about your project to help really prioritize what is actually needed. And then you do those with the contracts or whatever they are. And then you, you take the time to walk through them so that you understand them as an entrepreneur, as a filmmaker. Absolutely. And, and then they're in, you have it in Microsoft Word or whatever. And so you run, you're doing your next film. Well, you already have that contract and you understood it. You know, and maybe there's some tweaks that have to be made, but that's a whole different can of worms than starting from scratch. You know, now you've you've sort of paid that tuition, and I find that you know producers who really choose to understand the material, um, you know, they just roll it out over and over again. You know, they've paid for it, uh, they understand it, and uh, and all of a sudden those expenses kind of disappear. So on the next project, well, now I've got you know three story rights agreements in the bank. I understand that, Steve. Now, what I really want to do in this picture is whatever the next need is, and we, you know, we, we bump up to that. So, and it's important also as a lower budget filmmaker to understand that the first things you want to do is cover all your rights. Yep. 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 And, I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Get your releases. Get your releases. Can't say it enough. Get your releases. I call it the honeymoon. You get them during the honeymoon phase. Yes. Right, and, and 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 the honeymoon phase is at the front end, and and so if you know when you when you've when you've had the cup of coffee or you've had the beer, and someone says I'm coming on board, and you just say bam, okay, tomorrow I'll send you a release or a contract, whatever it is, so that we're good to go, and you just say because I believe that that I don't ever want you to be concerned that 
where's my agreement, right? Everyone wants that to be the case. And we're face. They're so happy to be on your project. Right? Exactly. That's when you want to get signed. You know, three months later is no longer the honeymoon phase. I don't care what happened on your film. It's no longer somebody on your film is unhappy, and they are not in the honeymoon phase. <laughs> and now they want something that you didn't have to give away three months earlier. So mm. you're right with that. I I kind of have I have I have three things when I talk about low budget filmmaking. Um, yes. To groups. Um, I kind of have three things. They're not all lawyery things. They're just sort of this merger of lawyer stuff and filmmaker stuff that I feel that, that I pay attention to when I go into a project. And the first one is um, it's all about selection. Um, and, and this is a tough one. This is actually the one that I get the most uh, uh, conversation around. Um, and I really challenge filmmakers who are making films at low budgets um, and, and we, we, it's all built around the Indiana Jones line uh, in Indiana Jones Part Three, where the um, mm-hmm. they're choosing the Grail. You know that that the 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 Nazi is uh, would in the cave where the Holy Grail is, but there's thousands of Grails, and 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 the knight who's been protecting them is saying, "You got to pick the Grail." You know, I can't tell you which one it is. And the Nazi chooses the shiniest Grail, right? And, and yeah. of course, he drinks from it, and it's the wrong grail, and he disappears. Because, you know, he melts. He is destroyed. And and there's a great line in that uh, the knight looks at him, and he goes, he chose poorly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And it's like, I'm not sure it's good writing, but it's perfect. It's funny. The whole right. theater just cracks up, right? Because, duh, yeah, he died. And then, of course, Indiana Jones chooses the cup of a carpenter, and, and it's fine. But... Um, but I, I use that to say, you know, if you're a filmmaker and you're taking any money in, no matter how how small, um, and you know, I have these lists I throw up on uh, on PowerPoints of places to go for money that isn't necessarily the crowd uh, for projects, and it's everything from you know how do you deal with donors and how do you um, get fiscal sponsors or grants, um, subsidies from various government entities. Um, and just no matter how you're doing it, you know you gotta kind of treat them like an investor, and 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 if that's the case, I mean choosing wisely means make a project that has an audience. I mean it's basic entrepreneurial stuff. Yeah. You know it's choosing wisely means I have of all the projects I had a choice to get involved in, I got involved in a project for which I understand the audience for the film. They're waiting for this content. Um, I understand who wants to buy the film and give it to that audience, right? I understand who's going to, um, you know, pay 10 bucks to see it or put it on their phone. Or I understand uh, I did a film called The Maury Island Incident that had a historical UFO thing, a really fun project. But, you know, I got lucky there because I actually didn't understand my audience in that project. I did not understand how zealously uh, excited um, the UFO genre is, and yeah. it, I mean, if I, you know, it's amazing. Everything oh, we time. post just is crazy, um, and it's wonderful. But you know, it's a strong genre audience, and and you know, so I got lucky because I feel like I, learning what you know, I got lucky that the audience is so strong for that content. Uh, but I think that's it. I think choosing wisely is, uh, you know, after owning your content, you know, sort of you, you mentioned. I think choosing wisely is, is just critical. And I, I challenge filmmakers when they say, well, I want to make, I have a story that has to be told and 
it happened to me and you know it's this very personal dramatic thing and I, I'm like I totally understand that but you have to convince me if I was your investor if I was your donor if I was uh, the arts commission you're going after convince me that that this is important to a bunch of people um, yeah. and, and I, I think that's a really 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 big challenge and big mistake and I think it's still dealt with at a studio level everybody deal but I don't think you get a free pass on choosing wisely because you're making a low budget film. Absolutely, yeah. It's like you, you still have to also be responsible to your investor. Yeah. So the second thing, I'll give you the second thing uh, I tell, we go through an exercise of uh, uh, if you're going to make a low budget film and, and you're the filmmaker, you're the producer, um, mm -hmm. um, I, I call it understanding the value of a dollar. And, and yes. you really need to get uh, your hands around and we throw a dollar bill up on the screen and then we talk about how do you make the act of giving the dollar to the filmmaker actually cost less than a dollar to the investor or the donor. Yeah. How do you do that? What is the magic that you can wave, the dust that you can throw on it that makes that dollar actually only cost 72 cents? You, know, you want to reduce the cost of every dollar that someone gives you and then on the other side you want to take that dollar and make it bigger than a dollar. How do you make the dollar even larger in value to your production? And, and you know, we talk about them. People go, I don't, what are you talking about? You know, and, and it really is a visual way of starting to talk about, um, you know, getting someone to be your fiscal sponsor so that when yes. someone gives you money, they get a tax deduction. So that just alone gave everybody who gave you a dollar 28 cents, cost them 72 cents to give you a dollar. So, yeah. so, ah, I get it. Okay, I get it. That's why I want a fiscal sponsor. And then you start talking about, well, do you live in a major metropolitan area? Do you have large companies that have thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees? Do they match donations that are being made by their employees? And a lot of those companies do. So in our, my region in Seattle, you have Boeing and, and uh, Packard and Weyerhaeuser and Amazon and Microsoft and all these just enormous companies, most of which match donations. So now on the other end, so if I can get a fiscal sponsor and that dollar only costs 72 cents to give to the production, I can take that dollar and turn it into $2, right, if I get that donation matched. True. So, uh, now, now I know what living room I want to pack for my pitch for donors. I want that living room to be full of Microsoft employees, or Amazon employees, or employees of a company. So how do I? Who do I know that works at that company? And then I say, if I hosted the dinner, would you invite fifteen people over? Those people are being hit up by their employer to donate, 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 and now your film is fiscally sponsored by the IFP project or or whatever, whoever has got that. So they're going to get their donation and you're going to double it. And all of a sudden, you know, if you've raised 10,000, you've actually raised 20,000. So, I mean, those are the kind of things where you start thinking as a producer and go, wow, I can, I can really move the needle here if I'm really smart about, even on these small projects, how I address taking that money in. Um, so anyway, I mean, that's number two. And number three is, um, I call it the marshmallow test, to pass the marshmallow test. And the marshmallow test is um, based on the Stanford experiment. I think it was a Stanford, not, not the Stanford prison experiment, but the, uh, <laughs> the experiment where um, 
uh, groups of children, and they were uh, it was four and five year old children, and they are brought in one by one into a room, um, and on, on the table in the room with the person conducting the study is a single marshmallow, and 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 the person conducting the study says to the child, you know, I got I got to run a quick errand. This marshmallow is for you. It's yours. Um, but if you can wait until I get, and you can have it right now. But if you can wait until I get back, it'll just be a few minutes. You can have two more, mm-hmm. two, okay? And so, and the whole point of the experiment was uh, to see uh, if this child had the ability to delay gratification. And then mm-hmm. they wanted to follow the groups of children that they conducted that test with through their life and, and see if at the age of four or five, if you have the ability to delay gratification, you get two marshmallows instead of one, do you also have that ability in other pursuits and does it help you be successful in some metric? And generally speaking, the test results, most people conclude, um, people fight about this, but the test results are uh, the ability to delay gratification correlates very strongly with all kinds of metrics of success in life. You know, because it, it goes through, the, these are the kids who also could stay home and study for two more hours in school. And these are the kids that, you know, did the things that we might otherwise think are interesting. Um, so um, the point of that is, I think that raising money for low-income films is a long schlog. And when someone comes to me and says, we're going to raise this money, we're going to start shooting in 30 days, and that's just the way it is. Because that's going to work. Yeah. If we just say it's going to happen, and I hear that all the time. You know, like that, that is an act of courage. And, and I, I kind of go, well, yeah, I get it. There's risk you're taking. But I actually think there's a ton of hard work to raise. It takes a long time to raise $100,000 at a small, small level, you know, in, in a living rooms and with charities and government. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of money out there, but you're going to raise it in smaller pieces. It's going to take a long time. And I like to create a calendar. I create a calendar in Seattle of all the places you're going to go for your money. And it's an 18-month calendar. It takes 18 months for you to go get money, get the money in the bank, get the sponsorships you need, get it matched, you know, then take all of that money to show that you have half your budget and then go to the other grant and give that. You know what I mean? It's just like it just takes time. You got to pass the marshmallow test if you're going to make this work. Yep. So those are the three things. And also, uh, we have a question from the audience as well: Is how do you approach a company to buy their old IP if they've not made any new stuff with it? That's a great. Well, first of all, the big. Sometimes the big hurdle. That's a great question. Uh, sometimes the big hurdle is find. You know, sometimes old com- companies actually go out of business, so it's even harder than old IP. It's like. The company doesn't even exist anymore. We had a we one time wanted to use a uh, uh, a brand of soda pop, um, and the company didn't exist anymore. And we were like trying to figure out who bought the assets, and you know, it was just a, just a nightmare. Just to get to the point of, of of actually you know being able to ask somebody who's the somebody, ask the question. So if the company exists and they're simply not uh, using their old IP. You don't make the mistake that somehow that's become public domain or you can use it. Um, you need to still, in almost every circumstance, determine whether or not it's still owned and, and, and they think it's valuable. And if you can find a person and work your way up the food chain, then you need to query them. And, uh, you know, they're going to want, you know, if they're interested at all, they're going to, they're gonna you know, want information about the project. Uh, if what you're looking for is, 
you know, if, if there's a pub, a book that's out of publication, I've had several examples of that in the last several years, books out of publication, someone wants to uh, get the rights to adapt that book into some sort of motion picture content. And, uh, you know, you just need to query the publisher and figure out how you're going to get through. Sometimes you can't get, you know, depending on the size of the publisher, it's just hard to get taken seriously. Um, but, you know, th those, are, those are common issues that every entrepreneur faces. Um, but ultimately, you know, presuming they still own the rights, whether it's a trademark, the name of the thing is important, or whether it's copyright, the content itself is important. Um, it's a licensing deal, right? I mean, at the end of the day, once you find out who it is, it's a licensing deal. So, um, uh, you know, I don't know if that's the answer to the question. It but is. I, I never tell someone, oh, gee, they haven't used it in 10 years. Go for it. That's, that's <laughs> no. never a good you, idea. You want to hear something? I was going to say, you yeah. want to hear something funny? I was interviewing these uh, filmmakers, and uh, they got, you know, they married each other as a man and a woman. And uh, they realized that both of them, their favorite movie was the movie Showgirls. That was actually <laughs> their favorite movie. And that's something they bonded together before they got married. So they wondered, they wondered what it would take to get the rights because they wanted to do a sequel to mm. <laughs> to the movie, and they went and they found and they went to the people that own the rights, and they said, you know what, you can have it. Really? So they made a sequel, like a straight to video sequel. Showgirls, the film Showgirls. Showgirls, yeah, Showgirls wow. too. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I, I would have assumed that as as in some ways ridiculous as that movie was, and it, 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 critically. People just lambasted it. It was a huge cult hit. Right? It was right. People love that film. So I'm, I'm shocked that they got rights for free. But hey, that's the way you do it, you know. Uh, and uh, sometimes there's a lot of sets of rights that have to be acquired, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, but but you know, if it's a studio level film, usually it's those rights are packaged in some way that can be can be sold. So, yeah. What? Else? Yeah. So what else should we talk about? Are we running out of time? Um, let's see. Uh, well, what we're also looking at is in terms of uh, what advice can you give to people for seeking out low budget filmmaking in terms of that? And, you know, what what pitfalls uh, do you want us to avoid in terms of crowdfunding? Oh, uh, well. Um, OK, well, let's take crowdfunding first. I. I think that uh, the, the the biggest concern that I typically have about uh, crowdfunding is that I think that it, it it is too quickly the deemed the first choice for raising money for a project. That that uh, oftentimes uh, folks, for whatever reason, they've got a project, whatever whatever nature it is, and and sort of the knee jerk uh, reaction is let's go let's go do a crowdfunding campaign and get the money to make the film. Or get the money to make the sizzle reel, or get the money to, to whatever it is, and and that's the very first um, uh, choice. And and I, I I don't really subscribe to that. I I, I think it's it, it it really needs to be a a um, uh, uh, thoughtful decision uh, based on a lot of factors. And, and one of the factors should be, you know, do you already, we talked about it earlier, do you already have a choir to preach to? Have you already built your audience for your project? Because I, I don't see a lot of success coming out of Kickstarter these days for film projects um, when nobody is um, 
aware of who the filmmaker is. You don't have mm -hmm. any name actors. Uh, it might not be a strong genre like science fiction or horror, uh, you know, w which would be strong genres and there's an audience looking for that content. Um, I, I, I think immediately going to the crowd and asking them for even 10,000 bucks is, is a bold move because, uh, you know, what's, what is the real strategy for which you would uh, get people to say yes? And, you know, the flame out stories are, are numerous on Kickstarter. And the average, I don't know what the average is over the last year or two, but for a number of years before that, so I, I'm not sure I have seen 2014 data, but 2013 data, I think the average raise for Kickstarter campaigns for films mm -hmm. was in the $7,000 range. That's the average successful raise. Yep. So, um, you know, it's not a lot of money, typically, um, and you still want to be preaching to a choir. And one of my one of my biggest concerns for anyone who has got a project that they think is the project they have to they, they have to have made, like before we die, this is the story I have to make. You know that level of project. You have that level of passion behind a story. Um, I am always concerned that going to the crowd, especially going to the crowd first, especially going to the crowd without even knowing who your crowd is and ha without them knowing that you're that you're coming you haven't already built an audience through social media or or, or your prior projects or whatever it is that you know the crowd may well say no right i mean that's just that's a risk mm -hmm. and, and if the crowd says no and you mm -hmm. don't fund and this is the project that you feel must be made what is your plan b at that point <laughs> um because yeah. Now all you have to tell an equity investor is that you already asked the crowd if they like the project and the crowd said no. But that's also as well to know whether you have an actual audience for the performance, for the actual movie itself. Because if you can't get them to get behind you for that and all they're doing is rah, 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 well, then it's a great passion project that you're excited about, but well, and that's obviously right. there's no audience. Yes. You're, you're taking the right lesson away. You're taking the right lesson, which is potentially there isn't an audience for the film. Um, the, you know, the secondary lesson could be um, uh, that the film should be made and that there is an audience, but you can't just throw it out to the crowd. There has to be another methodical way in which you would, you know, for example, maybe it's an issue-based film, and the issue, there are plenty of, NGOs and charities who would be excited to bring their membership into this project um, and they just need to be pitched personally and sort of get them on board like a snowball rolling downhill um, yeah. and that that's how you're going to end up with a hundred grand at the end of the day to make the movie and the movie has an audience but that would never happen on Kickstarter right right so yeah. so the question is that thoughtful approach to what is the way that we're going to get the hundred grand that we need and, and um, is isn't always the crowd it also, it's like, it, that's not to devalue grad, crowdsourcing as well, to say that you don't have a large fan base, but it's like, it really is also a like put your money where your mouth is. Yep. And, and well. I, yeah, exactly. I, I've got, I've got a uh, number of clients who are genius. I mean, I'm, I'm just so impressed at how they have built an audience and essentially make feature films and web series on a subscription basis. So they basically uh, launch a film, make a film. But they've already sold the film to their crowd who has funded that film, who then uh, consumed the film and helped the crowd grow, and they're ready for the sequel. 
and they want to get the band back together and see it again. And they do it again and they do it again. And some of these companies don't even charge. So the whole model is a public domain model by subscription to keep the stories going forward. Um, and I think that's really interesting, like super intriguing for people that can do that successfully. And um, yeah, I mean, and they're making films between 100,000 and 400,000 budgets. They're raising real money to make these make these films. Um, I, I sort of personally have never figured out why they had to uh, make them public domain. I mean, at some point, if you build a library of this free content, you should still own the content and potentially be able to market it down the road. If it, it becomes, if it becomes like a cult classic, I don't know that there's anything wrong with kind of having a library of content like Mystery Science 3000, you know, Theater 3000, where you just, you know, the, the cult audience just wants more and more of this content. So. Anyway, so those are, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always considered kind of a crowdfunding contrarian. Um, I see plenty of, of potential downsides alongside all the wonderful parts. I mean, there, it's, you know, uh, I, I just always want people to, to use it with their eyes wide open and, and understanding what they have to do to enhance their likelihood of success um, and then what the significance of failure is. And then, uh, you know, a lot of folks that haven't done it at all, if you've been involved in a campaign, understanding how hard fulfillment is, um, you know, when the uh, campaign's over and uh, your garage is full of hats and T-shirts and posters and DVDs and now everybody's gone and you get to mail them out for the next two months, you know, that's work. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's real work. <laughs> that's Very funny. true. And so with social media, Steve, how do get people get a hold of you? Uh, social media, I am super easy to find uh, if they have my name, Steve Edmiston. Just just Google that uh, with Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, and my law firm is Bracepoint with a B, Baker, Bracepoint Law. So uh, as opposed to giving, I have a lot of sound-alike consonants in my name. So as opposed to telling you how it's spelled, if you find it here, Steve Edmiston and, and Google, I'm super easy to find and get a hold of. Very cool. And I hope that you'll return to us one more time in the new well, year. Well, that's fine. We'll see, we'll see if anybody in the audience wants round three. I'm not <laughs> sure about that, but I'd be happy well, to do it. Well, we have, uh, I think we have a, a quick question uh, from JT. There's JT. How you yeah. doing, Jay? Yeah. Um, can you hear me? Yes, we hear you. I can hear you. Okay. Um, my idea is uh, take the old cartoon, say, like, Hong Kong Fui, you know, that era. Yep. Um. I believe it was Hanna Barbera, and they have not touched it since like since it ended like early '90s. And I want to make a game out of it. You know, great idea because I remember those because I'm older than the early '90s. <laughs> um, um, uh, Hong Kong Fui, yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, but bottom line is uh, that's copyright, right? I mean, that is that is that is the uh, those cartoons are the, uh, you know, uh, the expression of an idea fixed in a media. It's, it's fixed in film. That's yeah, that's standard copyright. And unless for some reason um, they have uh, the likely result, unless for some reason that has dropped into the public domain, that is well within the life of the copyright. Uh, I mean, we're 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 uh, the, the the copyrights are. Uh, life of the creator plus 70 years so and that number keeps getting bigger 
because the Disney company keeps wanting to keep hold of Mickey Mouse. And I'm not joking. So the lobbying keeps extending copyright laws even longer and longer. And, uh, and, and there's some value, there's some reason for that. If we make something valuable, we want to keep getting some money. But the bottom line for you is you'll have to go to the owner of that content and get a license to make a video game. Now, having said that, I think a lot of owners of content that is old might be very excited to hear from you. So I, I, yeah, I, um, I yeah. Um, uh, well, Hanna Barbera. Especially if you also get the copyright creator in there as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Hanna Barbera uh, folded, and then Warner Brothers bought. Don't make the mistake of certain things like Jim and the Holograms. <laughs> uh, uh, so say Warner Warner owns those assets now. Yeah, um, I looked it up a, a while ago, and Warner Brother owned. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to make, uh, figure out how to work your way up to the, uh, you know, uh, to make your licensing query, which is probably once you get to the right person, then they're going to be looking at your business plan um, uh, for you to exploit it. But, you know, the, you know, for the most part, I mean, it's a straight licensing play, right? I mean, you are, you are going to the owner of the content and saying, I would like to take your content and I'd like to make a video game out of it. And I'm going to incur all the expense of making this video game and I will pay you a royalty for the blessing of making this video game. And you will make 10% of whatever I make or whatever you negotiate for the royalty. You'll make 10% uh, Warner on all the sales of my video game. And they'll scratch their head and go, well, that might be a good idea. Um, but what we need from you is a, uh, a mandatory amount of money to get started. And that's where a lot of folks get tripped up because uh, most of the studio level licensed plays have a a guarantee um, and 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 some sort of mandatory amount of money. So they might say, gee, um, how much do you think you'll make in the first year when you market the video game? And let's say you answer uh, $100,000. And they'll say, okay, what I want is a, uh, uh, a guarantee in advance of, of $10,000. So I know that no matter, I don't want to take the risk that your video game doesn't sell but I'm, I want my money up front for the first year. And, and that often is the hiccup that, that catches people where they just feel like they can't, uh, can't put that kind of investment into it. But if you can, um, you know, I think exploiting, you know, content that has a, a, a fan base that exists, you know, you're following everything we talked about in the last hour. What, you know, there's a fan base for those old mm -hmm. Hanna-Barbera titles. There clearly is. And someone who makes a really fun game that you can experience it with a download of 99 set type. You know, I mean, I can see people wanting to jump on board with that. Okay. So get the rights first in the honeymoon phase. Don't make, don't make it. <laughs> They'll make then. it and then be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank That's you for the question. Man, that was a All great right. question. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Thank you, you uh, JT. for having me. Yep. Yeah, anytime, JT. Thanks, JT. Bye. All right. JT. All right. So, um, wow. Um, so make sure you guys, uh, you know, you follow Steve at Steve Edmondson. Uh, and that's uh, Steve, S-T-E-V-E-E-D-M-I-S-T-O-N. So uh, make sure you guys follow him. And Grayson, how can we follow you? Goodness, we can do it. Um... Uh-oh. Oh, we lost her <laughs> Uh oh! At movie time, Indy, I N D Y, you can uh, follow Grayson and uh, 
also too uh we won't be on next week due to the thanksgiving holiday so uh you know everybody enjoy your holiday but in 15 minutes uh we will be uh talking with uh within uh, the she's in the chat room angie nash nerdy companion so uh definitely guys uh, make sure you check that out i put the link to that one next all right, so all right, so we lost Gray. All right, so you guys have a great uh, Thanksgiving weekend, and God bless.